If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Titus chapter number 2 this morning. Titus chapter number 2. A departure from our, our, our preaching in the book of Mark and Matthew uh, just for this morning. <clears throat> I'd actually had somebody else planned to preach this morning and later in the week. Just providentially didn't work out um, for a number of reasons. Um, nothing, nothing inherently bad, but just, just didn't work out. And, uh, I hadn't I'd had somebody preaching for a number of reasons. Uh, sometimes it's just good for you to hear other gifted men. Um, they're gifted, and God's blessed the body with them, and, and they should minister in whatever capacity God's called them. Also, there was a portion there, the next portion in the book of Matthew, that I needed some some more time on, some challenging things. And, and also maybe just need a break from the book of Matthew and Mark right now. Those are some thick things that we've been talking about. Um, so we'll take a break this morning. And you'll remember about a month to two months ago, if you were with us, and we spent some time just on a pastoral, more of a pastoral message to our families. Um, and I think that's helpful. I think occasionally we need to remind ourselves of things that we already know that maybe we're not holding fast to or, or being faithful in, or, or maybe it's just to provoke us on to be even more faithful. Um, so we talked about the family. We talked about particularly fathers leading the home. And I mean, as I preached that, then my mind next went to the church. Um, maybe there's some things that we need to be reminded of in the church. But this is something that's been uh, percolating in my inner man for some time now. I was able to give some attention to it this week, so I want to commend it to you. Um, we went through Titus, or at least a good portion of Titus, some years ago, but many of you weren't with us. And I pray that um, whether you were or whether you weren't, that the Lord will um, use this passage of Scripture to direct your, your life and ministry and thinking um, in regard to your relationship to, um, to God's people. It'll be a simple sermon, nothing extremely profound. Just reminding us of things that we probably already know. But I pray that the Lord uses it to, um, to transform your mind and thinking this morning. So, this is the Word of God. If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. And we'll take our reading up in verse number 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, and love and patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we approach you again just to ask you to do things that we can't do. Father, we need you. Lord, I need you. Uh, we need you now to transform our mind and our thinking. We need you now to take the word of God, Father, to places um, that we can't go and to do things with it that we can't get, do. Father, we can accomplish nothing in and of ourselves this morning. We're, I'm reminded, Father, of, of uh, John as he writes um, that outside of Christ we can do nothing. So help us to abide in him this morning that we may bear fruit. Father, we can produce no fruit, um, but we can abide in the love of Christ and thus um, he produced things in us, Father, that are eternal. I pray this morning that we've not met out of tradition. It's not mechanical, Lord. We truly seek to hear from you. I, Father, myself, as I preach and as I read the passage, Father, and as I, I think on these things and you bring thoughts into my mind, Father, would you just deepen the love that I have for Christ this morning? Would you deepen my commitment, Father, to the church and to his bride? God, would you give me more boldness and a lack of uh, less of a fear of man and more of a fear of God? Father, would you bring before our eyes and our hearts the very holiness, the righteousness, and the, the justice of God? Father, would you make the grace of God known more, you know, known more to our hearts, Father, than we've ever known? Um, thus, it would uh, provoke us to um, thoughtful, joyful, Father, obedience that we would receive the Word of God with the utmost joy. Father, again, um, we rest in you. We rest in Christ's work and we rest this morning. I pray, Father, in the power of the Spirit of God that you may accomplish great and eternal things in our hearts. So we commend this time to you now. Help us to stay our minds and to focus wholly upon you. Help us to remove distractions, Father, from our, from our ears and from our eyes and from our hearts. And may we just hear the Word of God. And may we feel your presence. And may you manifest yourself, Father, to us in a way that we can know this morning that we've met with God um, because we're eternally changed. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Um, Titus is a phenomenal book. Um, three short chapters. But have been accomplishing eternal work since it was pinned down, no, no doubt. In verse number 5 of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes to Titus and somewhat gives us his purpose. Paul states that he left Titus in Crete for a reason. That purpose was to set in order the things that remained, the things that were lacking. Particularly, he would set up elders, he would appoint men um, to lead and to guide the church. These churches in Crete are particularly Gentile churches. Um, it's a Gentile area. They appear to be relatively new converts and new church plants. Paul saw the necessity of setting up elders, men to lead the church, particularly uh, by faithful teaching and by godly example. These men were to teach sound doctrine. But just as important, it seems, was that they too were to be a certain type of man. You see, a man's ministry is not only to be evaluated by the content of his message, um, but also by the character of, of the man. 
The two go hand in hand. You don't have a man who is a great teacher, but he has one blemish. He can't control himself around women. He's a, a serial adulterer. Other than that, some would say he's solid. The answer is no. Um, he's not solid. Verse number 9, Paul states that of necessity, he must not only be a man of um, content and a man of character, but also a man of somewhat contention. Not contention for contention's sake, but contention for the sake of the gospel. He says that these type of men are to, quote, hold fast the faithful word as he's been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. He goes on to say, quote, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped who subvert whole households, teaching things that they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Verse 13, Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Um, then he ends it with this in the chapter uh, 1 and verse 16. They profess to know God. But in their works, they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. There appears to be a type of Christianity, particularly those of a Jewish nature um, within the churches at Crete that had infiltrated those churches and were leading many astray by their teaching. Um, and that teaching seems to have culminated in a life that opposed what was supposed to honor God. Their profession to know God was nullified by their works, Paul says. And that leads him in chapter 2 and verse number 1 to say, but as for you. This is how they are. Now this is how you're to be. This is, it seems to be the primary reason that Paul even writes the epistle. To instruct them that there is a life in accord with godliness. Read with me verse number 1 of chapter 1. You read these words, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began, but as in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God, our Savior. This is what Paul says. And then he says, Titus, as a result of that, set some things in order, particularly men of godly character and of godly content to withstand in the churches um, those that are propagating traditions and commandments of men who have ungodly character. Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 1 says, You speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. And then he gives a list of the character and the activity that accords with sound doctrine. And then in verse number 11 of chapter 2, he says this, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works." He then picks back up in chapter 3 and verse number 1 with more of godly character, that is required of, of God's people and the activity that accords with godliness. He reminds them to be subject to the authorities that are over them and he carries on with a righteous activity and conduct that, is, that, that, is, that accords with those who profess faith in Christ. Paul seems to me 
wanted to encourage the churches at Crete particularly to be healthy churches. How would he do that? By setting up sound doctrine that accords with godly examples in the church um, who would teach the teachings of Christ that would culminate and end in godly character. The phrase there in 2 chapter 1 can literally be rendered this. Speak the things, Titus, speak the things which become sound doctrine. The idea is that there is a kind of teaching that promotes a certain type of lifestyle. And the gospel produces a certain type of life. That was the argument from 11 on. He begins with that argument that there's in chapter 1, verse 1, that there is a, 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 a teaching that accords and that, that becomes godliness. It somewhat culminates again in chapter 2, verse 11, and he, and, he, and he undergirds that with the opposition that this is exactly what they're not doing. Rebuke it, um, oppose it, um, and men who lead the church, be the example that others within your church um, ought to be. That the elders are commanded to speak about living a life that accords with Christ's teaching. That proper belief about God should result in godly life. Titus was to model that behavior, but he was also to speak to the elders of his church and the members about it. The pastors are given the task, particularly, um, to concentrate on the spiritual depth of their conversation and allow for God to take care of the, the quantity or the breadth. And as a result of maturity, righteousness, and overall health of the church um, and the congregation, their holiness will without a doubt be evangelistic. And that's what we read in Titus chapter number 2. That, that there's a series of requirements for a healthy church. That there's a type of character that leads to the type of conduct that honors Christ. And at the end of the day, it will have an evangelistic impact. That's the, the idea. That there is a type of, of life that accords with godliness. And there's a type of life which nullifies the gospel. Okay? That there is a type of character... That, un, that, that Jesus Christ Himself died to accomplish in the life of His body, in the life of His people. That's the idea. And thus He should um, receive it. And it should be sound. You say, uh, earlier I referenced the term healthy, a healthy church. Um, you know, as I pray about the church and I pray about um, goals of the church and I think about our purpose and what I desire to see here at Christ Bible Church, I think I desire to see a healthy church. And you say, where do you get that from? I get it from Paul here. The term sound there, um, it literally could be translated just like that, healthy. Um, it doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't signify expertise. It, it doesn't demand highly skilled or highly trained men or women. Um, now, it doesn't exclude those things. But those things are not necessary. The word comes from a word that we get our English word, hygiene. It's a, it's a medical term. It's very interesting, too, that Paul uses another medical term prior to this where he talks about setting things in order. It's literally um, it's, it's, a, it's a word that would be used by orthopedic surgeons today to, to set a bone in place. There's something out of order that we need to set in order, thus that the body may be um, healthier. The, the very same term is used in Luke 5.31 um, of this term, hygiene or sound. Um, it, it, 
as Jesus answers them and he says, those who are well, those who are sound have no need of a physician, um, but those who are sick, that literally it could be used to speak of the health of a body and Christ uses that way in, um, in, in the midst of his miracles and, and in the midst of his teaching. It signifies a teaching of a church that is a healthy teaching. Healthy teaching produces healthy churches, healthy men and healthy women. Health is in some sense an indicator for fitness or for uh, and not, not just fitness in the sense of, of a, a fit body, but, but, but fitness in the sense of the ability to accomplish or to be used for a task. A healthy person is, is a person that's fit for a task. On the other hand, an unhealthy person is a person that is not fit for particular tasks. You know, over the past decade or so, um, I've worked as a nurse in a hospital and literally taken care of unhealthy people, thousands of them, as they come to the hospital and they, they see the physicians because that's um, because the things that they used to do, they're no longer able to do. Even common, everyday tasks become unable to be accomplished. Common things that people say to me all the time are, I can't even walk to the mailbox anymore without getting short of breath or having chest pain. I can't do the things that I want to do. Sometimes even the most menial tasks. This is because the people are unhealthy. There's something that's going on in the body that's manifesting itself in weakness and debilitation. I generally deal with people who have things like chest pain or shortness of breath. These are bodily weaknesses that are debilitating. But the reality is that they are not the problem. In some sense, they seem to be the problem because those are the things that keep the people from doing the things that they love or the things that they need to do. But the reality is, is that that's just a symptom or a manifestation of a deeper problem. Whether it's plaque being built up in the arteries or a weakened heart from a virus, a harmful lifestyle or exposure to some chemical, something has happened to the heart that has produced these symptoms. And of course, these are not normal. But the reality is, and the sad thing is, is that many people believe that it's normal. Many people have accepted them as the new normal and learned to live with them. Or many experience symptoms like that and they just simply contribute it to things like old age. You know, they've just accepted the decline in their health as a normal process, even as their permanent state. It's just the course of nature. They fail to realize that it's not normal. It's often the result of an unhealthy lifestyle that leads to an unhealthy body which prohibits them from doing the things that they want to do and the things that they were created to do. Um, similarly, that's the idea here, that this is the case in many churches. They're weak. Um, they have irreparable symptoms of unhealthy lifestyle. Um, or maybe they're just academic, they're traditional, they're conservative, they're Baptist, they're Presbyterian, but they're weak and the saddest part is they've rationalized it, uh, that weakness to the point that they call it natural or normal. You know, uh, many have accepted a decline in the, the church as a permanent state. They've rationalized the lack of growth in some cases and even made it seem holy. I mean, after all, Jesus only had 12 disciples. Paul told Timothy that the time was coming when they won't endure sound doctrine. And the question is, is that should those phrases really define our ministry? Should they make us feel better with less than what, I, than what God desires or expects of us? Should we look around at Christianity and the churches and maybe even our church and when we see a deficiency, we see a weakness, we see a lack, we see um, things within our church that are alarming, should we pipe up and say, well, these things are just the times that we live in? I mean, Paul said it would get worse and worse. 
Should we look around at our men and see indifference and apathy and neglect and say, well, this is what Paul prophesied in the last days would characterize our times? Should we look around at professing believers who are, 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 are men or women and see a clear lack of regard for what the Bible teaches a young man or a young woman ought to be and just simply disregard it because of the times? Should we be so afraid to lose members over seemingly controversial issues that we refrain from proclaiming the truth to harbor Christian fugitives and rebels? Have we so little regard for the faith in the gospel and the word of God that, 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 that through redemption has, has, has accomplished not only the salvation of eternal image bearers of God, but even their sanctification and their, um, and their growth here and their character even here? Um, have we so little regard for faith in the gospel and the word of God to believe that maybe he is able to accomplish what he desires if we are faithful to proclaim it? I believe that's what Paul is dealing with here, a group of teachers who have, have disqualified themselves because of their teaching and their lifestyle and it's seeping into the church. He may be looking around and seeing character not in accord with the gospel. So what does he say? He says, teach men and listen. I know it sounds good to say I'm fine with little fruit because after all, Jesus only had 12 disciples, but, but, but just because Jesus only had 12 disciples doesn't mean we should. It shouldn't be the end game. Jesus' mission was not to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Or it, was, was, uh, it was to every creature, but to die and to lay the foundation for the church to build upon it. If the apostles were the, uh, Christ was the chief cornerstone and the apostles were the, the, the foundation and we were to build upon that from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And Paul's intent was not to make us comfortable in our lack of growth or in our apathy or in our indifference, but to teach Timothy to stay the course and to grow even in spite of the lack of endurance of sound doctrine by the opposition. Now he's teaching them that in the midst of a culture of unhealthy and unsound doctrine and unsound churches, Timothy, you are called to lead one that is healthy. You are to expect things of your men. You are to expect things of your women. You are to guard the flock of God. You are to shepherd it. You are to even, if I require, die for it. You are to lead it in the way that it ought to go. You are to model what sound doctrine should be, what godliness in accord to sound doctrine is supposed to be. Thus he lays out um, even the qualifications to Timothy and Titus as what type of men they are to be and what type of men that are to lead so that the church will know what type of men that they are to be. That there is not some separation between clergy and laymen. Um, there's not some type of hierarchy in which the clergy are held to one standard and the men and the, and the ladies are held to another. That the gospel that saves the pastor is the same gospel that saves the layman and the, and the, and the, and the man and the woman in the pew, the faithful, um, the, 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 the worker at, at, at the factory or the, the, the nurse at the hospital or the doctor um, within the clinic or, or the mother at home. And the same gospel that transforms a, a, a man to be a pastor, to devote himself to the life and godliness, or to a life of godliness, is the same gospel that saves every soul within the world and should, should too provoke them to life and to godliness. The problem is, is that for many of us, we've never seen a healthy church. It's easy to see how a person could grow weary and even jaded in our culture um, simply because when you look around, you see no devotion. You see very little commitment. Um, you don't see what, it, what, what, what a man ought to be or what a, a woman um, ought to be. And we can grow weary 
and think that it could never happen. And it will never happen simply because of the world um, in which we, we live, right? And, but the reality is, is that maybe it's that we're looking for a perfect church, you know? I know of people today that are still single uh, because they're looking for the perfect mate, <laughs> you know? Uh, they will remain single for the rest of their life if that's <laughs> the goal. Um, the reality of marriage is not to find that perfect someone whom will just fall over head and heels over you. Um, marriage is a life of service to somebody that you've covenanted with and committed yourself to, um, to give your life uh, essentially as a ransom for them, to wake up every day and die to self and exemplify Christ and love them. And thus God makes them as well as you in that mutual symbiotic relationship more like himself. That's a healthy marriage. It's not a perfect marriage, but it's a healthy marriage. It's a, it's a marriage that promotes godliness. It's a marriage that promotes sanctification. I mean, in a similar way, a church is not to be a perfect church. It could never be a perfect church, not until the other side of glory. And I've met people who have been looking for a church for two decades, and they just can't find the, the church that God desires for them to be in. And, and I understand that it's hard and that there's, it takes discernment and, and you should, should um, you know, it's, it's, it's weighty and, and you, should, you should look and you should long and you should pray and you shouldn't just take, you know, anything and anybody and any church. That there's some things that, that even within a relationship, men and women, those that are single, uh, those, those little ones that are around here that one day will get married, there are certain things that are non-negotiable in marriage, you know, that you look for in a mate. But perfection is not one of those. And the same with the church. The church is never going to be a perfect church. That when you come and they have everything that is lined out perfectly like you want, um, give it a week, two weeks, give it six months, and you'll find out that these people are just sinners saved by the grace of God. That, that the goal is not to find a perfect church, but the goal is to find a, a healthy church, a church that, that is, is teaching sound doctrine, that desires to know God's Word, that, that, that goes to His Word for counsel and for help and, and the ministry and for, for anything and everything. And as you tie yourself and bind yourself and covenant yourself with that body of imperfect believers, God um, is, in the, is in the business of... Uh, God will be in the business through the power of His Spirit... As accomplished by Christ to perfect that body. That's what we are being. We are being perfected, yet we'll never be perfect until we meet Him on face to face and we will be like Him. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter number 4. This is why pastors and evangelists and apostles are given. Why? For the perfecting of the saints. And for the perfecting of them that the body is perfected through the ministry of um, the shepherd, through the ministry of the teaching um, of God's Word. And that in accord with that teaching is a requirement of a certain type of lifestyle that accords um, with that. That as the Word of God goes forth, you'll be able to identify a healthy church by the character that it produces. It's more than just academia. It's more than just um, skill. It's more than just oratory um, methods. It's more than just outlines. It's more than just um, uh, systematic teaching. Um, there, there is a certain type of teaching that seems um, to be just spirit wrought. Uh, there's a certain type of way that you should read your Bible in which it just penetrates and infiltrates your heart such that um, the, the gospel transforms you by the grace of God and cultivates in you a type of character that is, that is it illuminates um, the gospel of God um, to a lost and a, a dying 
world. And a church um, that, that um, over a period of time, that is not produced in, there is something fundamentally wrong with that church. And that is generally just a symptom of a deeper problem. And that is not always inherently the problem, but there is a problem underlying it um, in which it is not healthy. And thus, when it is not healthy, even going to the mailbox um, is an impossibility. When we think about the task that we've been given here, and I think about the task that I've been given, you know, and I just ask the question, are we a healthy church? You know, God has given us certain things to do. Is the gospel producing that in us? Are we a gospel-centered church such that we are totally relying upon Him and that grace is extended to you week to week and day to day, I hope, in your own lives such that it's producing something in you to equip you for the work that God has given you? You know, are we like a, a, a church who's had a stroke and we're hobbling around and we've just accepted that as normal because of the times that we live in? You know, or, do we, or has God given us something to do and something to be? Um, and we are to pursue that. And the reason that we're not pursuing it is because there's something unhealthy about us. You know? And I'm not saying that's true. I'm simply provoking thought as I even examine my own heart and my own ministry um, in accord with that. So healthy churches are made up of men and women of all generations, both mature and immature, who have given themselves over to the teaching of God's Word to be taught and given themselves over to the church to be taught what accords with godliness. So I want to look just for a few minutes, and I don't have time to go into all this in, um, in, in, in an exhaustive form. But maybe we could ask the question this morning, what type of men does the gospel create? What type of women does the gospel create? Because we see those men and we see those women here. That these are the things that become sound doctrine. That when the gospel is gone forth, this is the type of man and this is the type of woman that it produces. Right? Verse number two, verse number one, but, uh, chapter two, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. What are the things that are proper for sound doctrine? That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in the faith, in love, and in patience. That the Bible here speaks of older men. It doesn't necessarily necessitate a particular number to fulfill the role. Not, not necessarily. But generally speaking, it speaks of, of older men. Because older men typically have, have wisdom associated with wisdom, uh, maturity, and understanding. You know, Job 12.12 12 says, Wisdom is with aged men and with long men of understanding. There's a general, and with life is understanding. A general principle to follow is that, that older men are typically wiser men, men of understanding. And I guarantee in Job's day that that was even more true. I mean, a day where modern medicine wasn't available to keep the idiots alive. 
Um, I've never met an, an 80-year-old um, foolish man in the hospital. They're probably there, especially with modern-day medicine. But in the old days, the, the book of Proverbs is pretty clear um, that, that the unwise and the foolish man generally self-destructs and kills himself. So generally speaking, that the older the man, he's, he's generally a wiser man because he's made it that far and he's not done things that would um, lead to his, his, his death. But even in that, there was a danger. There's a danger of that for older men. In the midst of uh, increased knowledge and understanding, life can change and the, the body changes and life can become less fulfilling, less satisfying. You, you can diminish energy, diminish senses, um, increased aches and pains, oftentimes depression, discouragement attached to former things that accompany age. Um, and older men, too, can forget the reason for which God created them. There's a danger within the church. Um, uh, for older men, and especially in our culture of Christianity, to kind of sit aside. I can, I can remember in previous churches, I mean, it was almost as if the youth were leading the pack. You know, when the youth would get excited, the church would get excited. Um, and there's an excitement to children, isn't there? You know, in the home. Um, but when the children rule the roost, um, the home self-destructs. <laughs> that God has given, not children to... Uh, parents for their personal enjoyment or fulfillment. God has given children to parents to raise in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Um, it's not to be best friend, it's to be father. It's not to be best buddy, it's to be mother. It's to, to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord in the way that they ought to go. Why? Because what you find within a young man is often just um, a blaze of immaturity and, and ultimately foolishness and self-destruction. Um, thus God gifts children with um, with these, these entities, with these offices of mother and father, um, such to curb the immaturity and train them up in the way that they often go so that they don't self-destruct. And the reality is, is that the same is within the church. Um, that as a church, we should desire older men. We should desire mature men. And even within the context of this church, there are some very mature younger men in whom the example should should. Um, should be followed. And I've even commended some men to follow their example, even though they're younger men. Um, so, so older men are to be a certain type of man. That we within the church are to promote a certain type of man. And that men, not only older men, but younger men, they say, I'm a younger man, I'm, I'm excluded from this. No, the older men are to be this so that the younger men have an example in which they can follow. Thus, this is a requirement of all men. What are these men to be? What does the gospel create within a church? What does the redemptive, the redemptive process of Christ's sacrifice, what did he die to save but also die to create? What type of men should um, dwell and live and, and minister within the church? It should be a sober-minded man, he says. It carries the idea of being free from intoxication. It doesn't necessarily speak about um, alcohol inherently, but it could also be used metaphorically of a, a man that's somewhat moderate. A person who avoids extravagance or overindulgence, a sober, temperate, older man is able to discern more clearly which things are of greatest importance and which things are not. Which things matter and which things don't. Thus he uses his time, his money, his energy more carefully and selectively than when he's younger and less mature. His priorities are in the right type of place. He's able to control himself. 
The fruit of the Spirit um, in Galatians is uh, one of those is self-control. This man, God has cultivated in him through sound biblical teaching and a, and a, and a firm understanding of the gospel that, 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 that he is to be a man who can control himself. He can control himself within the home. He can control himself within the church. He can control himself within the community. This is in part what Jesus Christ died to, to create within the body of, of believers. He's to be a reverent man. He's to be dignified. He's to carry himself in such a way that he is worthy of respect. He doesn't need to demand it. Um, his character demands it. He doesn't ask for it inherently. He carries himself in such a way that, that others respect him. The way that he carries himself in daily life, the way that he governs his household, the way that he raises his children, the way that he, 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 he carries himself within the context of the workplace. He carries himself with control. He understands that he's there to work as unto the Lord and to be a father as unto the Lord and to be a husband as unto the Lord. Thus, he knows what to grab a hold of and he knows what not to. He knows what jokes to laugh at and he knows what type of speech um, to, uh, to, to, to run away from. He understands who and where he should be and when he should be and when not. Thus, um, he, 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 he earns some type of dignity and respect, even among unbelievers. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing how you can work with somebody who's a Christian, just a godly example. And regardless of whether other people are Christian or not, they know something about that man. And they say that man is a dependable man. That man is a dignified man. That man is a man that you can trust. That man is a man that you don't cross. That man is a respectable man. I don't necessarily agree with everything that he is or everything that he believes or everything that he does. But at the end of the day, that is a man that is revered, not only by believers, but even by unbelievers. And I've heard the testimony of even some of the men in this church from, from, from places of work. And, and that's a reality, you know, that whenever you... And it's not, a, it's, not, it's not anything that you are arrogantly demanding. It's just something that God has cultivated in you um, that the rest of the world looks and they see that that is a man that you can depend upon. That is a man who has earned respect. He's a temperate man. He's a self-controlled man. He's a sensible man. He is a man with discernment, a man with discretion, a man um, who has solid, sound judgment. And, and it comes from walking with God. It doesn't come within himself. It comes as he walks with God for many, many years. He's a man that's sound in the faith. This type of man has lived, lived long enough to know that God can be trusted in every way. I mean, it's, it's, not a, it's a man that doesn't question his wisdom or his power or God's love. Um, they've learned through time and example to not lose trust in the goodness and the grace of God and, or to lose confidence in His plan. This type of man is not only a man who's righteous and dignified and holy and, and upholds the Word of God, and he, abide, he does it because he abides in God's love. That's what it says, um, in charity or in love. That this is a man who is, uh, has love toward God and he has love towards people and he has love for his family and he has love for strangers. And it's a healthy love. It's an error on the side of graciousness love. It's a love that doesn't hold grudges, but it's a love utmost that loves Christ and manifests itself in love towards people. And they've learned to love when their love is not deserved and they continue loving even when it's rejected and even when they suffer as a result, they follow in Christ's example. And they love when it's hard and they love the hard way, you know? They're not permissive with their children. They love and, and that love provokes them towards, towards rebuke and towards correction and towards discipline. As, as is even exampled here by the elders, men, rebuke these men. Why? So that they may be saved. 
that you may win them to Christ. That there is a type of love that manifests itself in what the world would call even a harshness. But this type of man um, loves the brother, loves the unbeliever so much that when sin arises in their lives, they're willing to go to the hard place and to call them back that, that God may save even their souls. It's a love, it's a, it's, it's a man that he's, he's, he's patient. He goes, he, he goes on to say, he's steadfast, he perseveres, he endures to the end. This type of man exhibits its ability to endure hardship, to accept disappointment, to look at, the, look at failure and to learn and to grow from it, to, to, to even recognize their own. It's not a perfect man. He's not a perfect man. Know that. He's, not, he's a healthy man. He's not a man that, that, is, that is without charge. He's not a man that's never called out for sin. He's not a man that, needs, that never needs to repent. He's a man that knows that when these things happen, that, this is, that that's exactly what he needs to do. You know? I've um, thought a lot about the church. I've thought a lot about my own family. I've thought about my greatest priorities. And I've thought I need to be an example to them. And I thought, what does that example look like? You know? Does it look like perfection? Does it look like creating some image to my children or to my church that is just, you know, above and beyond all other people? No, not necessarily. I'm convinced that um, our great calling in life, not only mine but yours, is simply um, to teach others how to follow Christ. See it. That's it. It's as basic as that. Teach them how to believe. Teach them what it looks like to repent. Teach them what the grace of God looks like upon your life. Teach what forgiveness looks like. Teach what reconciliation looks like. You know, don't hide the, all of the imperfections. There's some things that your children never need to know um, as you protect them and even um, um, uh, shelter them from certain things. But then there's also certain things that you must let them know. They must see you struggle through life. They must see the hardships. They must see the love. They must see the grace. They must see the forgiveness. They must see some of those things that teach them that when this happens, son, because it will happen, then this is what you do. This is where you go. This is how you run to Christ. This is how you weep over sin. This is how you repent. This is how you're bold. This is how you're courageous. This is how you stand for Christ. This is how you're reconciled with him. This is this type of man. He's not a perfect man, but, he's, but, but as an older man, a more mature man, he understands the grace of God. He understands the holiness of God. He understands such that, 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 that God has cultivated in him character that does not live or abide or grow in the common man, but it's just solely the grace of God. And he's so gracious to God. And there's such gratitude in his heart and in his soul that there is a devotion to God um, that, that, that for the rest of his life he's going to govern himself not by his own desires but by um, the desires of God. That that's maturity. That the goal of this church and discipleship is not to make perfect little robots or automatons but to raise up men of maturity and men of integrity and men worthy to be followed and men that are, a, that are can be and will be the example um, to other men. To other men, that's the type of man that the gospel produces through a process that we call sanctification. What does the outworking of redemption look like in the life of a mature woman? Titus 2.3 tells us just that. Um, just that. 
Um, let me just say I thank God for the women of our church. Um, I thank God for um, for women all together. You know, against popular belief today in modern day characters, the scriptures place a high value on the status of being a woman. Let me just tell you, it's different than what the world believes for the most part. Um, when you read the scriptures, though, um, the, the status of a, a woman is monumental. It's, it's, it's irreplaceable. Um, if you read the Gospel of Luke with any care, you'll see the value that's displayed. They, uh, women are portrayed as some of the most faithful followers throughout the ministry. It was uh, women close to Christ at the cross. It was a women that the, first went to the tomb. It was women who knelt and, and at his feet and wiped his feet with their hair as an act of worship. It's, a, it's clear that redemption has placed a high status upon women in the kingdom of God. In fact, I'll go as far as to say that the kingdom of God cannot advance nor ultimately accomplish its purpose without um, godly women. Women are essential to the life of the church. They're not to be left out, pushed aside, or considered second-rate or inferior. They're essential. Women have been instrumental in every God-honoring church throughout every generation. They've been instrumental in teaching and encouraging younger men and younger women in the Lord. They've ministered to each other and to women in the church of any age, single, married, widowed, or divorced. They visited the sick of those in prison. They provided hospitality to, to travelers, especially those of, in the form of ministry. They've been helpers. They've been companions. They've been encouragers of husbands. They are that which men need to complete the God-given task of reaching the nations. And I know that the ministry of this church has been, uh, that, that, that has been contingent upon the, the, the ladies here. Some of the most servant-oriented people within the nature of this church um, have been the women that God has um, given us and have even been an example to me in the self-sacrificial love um, of Christ. So there is a sense in which I'd, I commend much of my life's sanctification to you and to this bride. At the same time, it's not what the world believes that a woman should or ought to be. It's completely different. You know, that today the biblical view is often espoused as discrimination against women and, uh, and inequality. But the reality is, is that men and women are created differently and they have distinct roles and, those, and even different character that is required. While there is some that is overlapping, there is a beauty uh, to a godly woman that a man will never be and never should be. There's a ministry that's given to her and given to you, ladies, that I will never be a part of. And know this, I, don't, I, I can't and I, I won't be. Nor should you desire to be a man. Nor should you desire the offices or the roles and responsibilities that God has given distinctly to men. It's not to undermine a woman and it's not to elevate a man. But it is to recognize the God-given priority and, and, and relationship and and and. and Formality, the, the way that he formed us is just simply different. I think that's undeniable, not only scripturally, but even um, to say naturally. And to truly honor a woman for the way that God desires and designs is not to discriminate upon that woman, but it is to honor her uniqueness and beauty as it truly is. You know? Um, there's a beauty in a rose. Right? Right? No other flower, no other tree has. 
Um, and the thing to do is not to rip it apart and make it something that it will never be. But to enjoy it as God created and to find beauty in it and to utilize whatever it is. It will never be an apple tree. It will never produce that fruit. Um, but it will produce a fruit of its own that is unlike any other. And thus, as uh, men and as women, we should embrace um, the uniqueness and the utility and the beauty that God has made for each of us. That that's what the gospel produces. The redemptive act of Christ produces a particular type of woman. Now, that's not to say that every woman is exactly the same, nor is it to say that every man is exactly the same. But it is to say that there are certain character which... Um, that governs all of man's activity and all of woman's activity that will direct us into the areas that God has given us. And built upon that, we'll be skilled, it will be intellect, it will be context, and God will use us in mighty and in different ways. He doesn't create us all the same, but there is somewhat of a base character that He does create in us that um, constitutes um, godliness for men and for women. So what, does a, what does the redemptive act of Christ look like in a woman's life and within the relationship of the church? That the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior. There's a holiness and a reverence to her. This, time, this word reverent, the only time is the words used in the New Testament. Um, it's related to a word being used for priests serving in the temple. God is saying that um, every woman should see themselves as set apart for the service of God. That you as a woman should see yourself not as a minority or not as inferior, but as created by God in this unique way for the very service of God. That He has redeemed you and He's redeemed you for Himself. Not for your husband and not for your children, but for Him. And through your relationship to Him, you, you, it directs your life. It directs your singleness. It directs your marriage. It directs your children. It directs your community. It directs your service within the church. Thus, it can look different depending upon women, but at the end of the day, every godly woman should say, I have been redeemed by Christ for a particular purpose, and that is the service of God. And what that service may be, may look different among different ladies and men. But nevertheless, you were created and bought with a price. Your body is His. And He dwells within you. And thus, He governs every area of your life. And that's what He says, being reverent in your behavior. What does that mean? It's saying that this reverence is to be displayed in your life and everything that you do. It means here that there is nothing in your life that is unaffected by being set apart for Christ. You exist to represent Christ in your thought life, in your words, and in your actions. And that, that is a starting point of life for you. Your life springs out of the redemptive work of Christ. Your sinful past does not define you. Nor does the community, nor does the church. But your relationship with God does. You are Christ's. You are reverent. You're sound in speech. You're not slanderers. You're not malicious gossips. You don't go behind the scenes and say, oh my, did you see that? Did you, did you look at her? Did you see him? Um, but you're, you, you have sound speech. You're not slanderers. Um, you, you're not liars. You're not backbiters. You love the truth. And you realize that, that the word that God has given you is a tool that you must consciously use your tongue, use your lips, and use your voice for the high purposes as one set apart for Christ. That you use it for the building up. Proverbs 31, 26 says, when she opens her mouth is wisdom and kindness. 
That her tongue is, is to be a tongue that is used for the glory of God to build up um, others within the church and others within the home and others within the community. It is to be a tool of evangelism and a tool of discipleship and a tool of upbuilding. That this is one of the greatest tools both men and women are given. It's marked by sobriety. She's not enslaved to too much wine. Um, but she is to be fueled and controlled by the very Spirit of God. She's sympathetic. She's a teacher of good things. That's what verse 4 says. Verse 5. Uh, verse 3, teachers of good things. They admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be blasphemed. And they're models. Um, and not, not supermodels in the sense of the world, but, but models and examples. They're teachers, both formally and informally, not necessarily one and not necessarily the other, but they're examples to others within the church. Men are as well um, of, of what, a, what, what a godly woman should be, of what a, how a godly woman should carry herself, about how a woman is to love her husband, to be his best friend, to be his companion, to be his number one, to aid him in accomplishing the purposes for which God had given him to do and them to do, to, to, to teach them how to raise up children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Uh, when you find a godly woman like this, you should cling to her. You should look to her example. You should seek after um, knowing how it is that she governed her household, how she loved her husband, how she raised her children uh, emotionally, socially, spiritually, um, all around. That, that is, that is, that is a, a foreign subject to the world today. And I'm telling you, the only place that you'll find that is within a healthy church and within the Word of God. Thus, seek after it. That this is what... Um, and the women of the, the church are, are to do. Um, you say, I've never done that before. I don't know what that looks like. Um, it's interesting that in the Gentile um, world, the chances are they didn't either. God had called them to be something and to do something that they'd never understood or never seen. You wouldn't find the type of woman nor the type of man that a man ought to be or a woman ought to be within a Gentile context, a Jewish context, or a Greek context. That as the church was born in the culture, the Christian home in such pagan cultures was radically different. He says, he's saying, I want you to learn the spiritual priority of an intimately close relationship in marriage. And this is one of the many ways that the church will separate itself in a radically different way. Thus be that and thus be an example of that. He said, I've never done that before. It's not a good excuse. As far as I can tell, these men didn't either, man. I've, I've thought about that. There's certain things I know we need to do. And then at the same time, I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know how to do that. How do we do that? You know? It's almost like we're looking at each other, chomping at the bit. We know that, that we need to move forward. But at the same time, it's like we've never, I've never seen an example of that. I don't, I don't know what a healthy church is. <laughs> I don't know what it's supposed to look like. But at the same time, you, you just throw yourself upon God and trust Him that, 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 that the example is there and that He'll lead and direct you in it. But also something that we desire is that as God leads in that, that we would leave a model and an example for other men to follow as we seek to um, employ the ministry in other places, plant churches and reach the world with the gospel. It's the same within the home. I didn't know how to be a father. I had no clue. I don't know how to raise children. It's amazing all the papers you have to sign to, to take a car home. They didn't make me sign anything to take a human being out of the hospital. Put it in my car and ask no questions. And um, 
You're given this precious gift, resting totally in Christ, waiting for Him to teach you. And I can remember being a young man as a Christian, not knowing left from right, spiritually speaking, and just learning how to treat my wife at the time, not only by God's Word, but by the example of other men. You know, I am indebted to those men. Um, because the reality is, is I didn't know left from right. That a lady is supposed to be chaste. She's to have a purity of body, a, a modesty about her. Um, that, that, that isn't even 100% contained to how she dresses, but she dresses a particular way um, not to draw attention to her body because of a spirit of, mint, of, of meekness and gentleness and purity um, that is cultivated in her heart. She recognizes that even the way that she dresses um, teaches and preaches and proclaims something to the world by the way that she carries herself. Um, she's to be a homemaker. She's, you know, her primary goal and a purpose in life is to be, um, if she has children, is to give herself to the home and to the, the husband. And I know that's controversial, um, but I'm convinced that that's the reality. And to submit to God's Word, that doesn't mean that she's tied, you know, uh, she's um, barefoot with an apron on in front of the stove all day long. Um, we recognize that God gifts women in particular ways, not only in the home but outside, and, and that the ministry can go as far as God allows. But, 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 but I think the general rule is, is that when those things begin to take away from her home and her husband and her children and the priorities that God has given to her within the home, then those are the first things that go. She needs to be mature enough to recognize what her priorities are and when to lay other side aside other things that she may like to do or she may want to do. And let me tell you, the same is true for me, friends. You need to know that as a pastor and as a, as a preacher and as being engaged in the ministry and, and, and working and being within the home, I, I too have to recognize what, what stays and what goes. When something begins to encroach upon the family, even if it's the ministry, um, then there are certain things that need to be cut because the reality is, is that it is directly tied to one another. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy and says, man, if you can't rule your household, then you can't rule the house of God. So know this, know how to balance the two. A mature man, a man that's in control, a man that has soberness about him understands exactly what's priority and what's not, and so does a woman. She understands what God has called her to. She's been there long enough and under the teaching of the Word of God and that it accords with godliness and she knows what her priorities are and what are not. And she knows how to, 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 to cut, a, cut ties with those things that, 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 that encroach upon the eternal purpose that God has given her for this period of time in her life. She's good. Um, she's good is what he says. She's obedient to her husband. She knows how to submit. She knows how to lay aside maybe even rights and privileges to submit to an authority that is, that is God-ordained. Um, and so do men. The same way that the submissive nature to men and women, are, are um, it, it comes from Christ and His submission to the Father and even laying aside certain rights and authorities for a greater purpose. That this is what she's to be. And then it picks back up with the younger men, that the older men um, are to exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Um, that much of the men here will learn how they are to carry themselves within a godly context and what God requires of them because they look at the lives of other men. 
That they are to teach them how to be reverent. They are to teach them how to be sober. They are to teach them doctrine that has integrity. They are to teach them how to be incorruptible. They are to teach them what sound speech is and what it's not. They are to teach them to be a pattern of good works. As a pattern of good works, they are to teach them how to be a pattern of good works. You know? This is why God gives men to the church. This is why men must lead. This is why men must be the example because men particularly, young men particularly, little boys particularly are immature, they're foolish. Um, and God sets men in authority and women in authority over them to lead and to guide and to direct them in the way that they ought to carry themselves in the way that they ought to go. And to teach them too that as, as, that as children they are to be little men. Right? I am to teach my boys that they are not only to serve God in some capacity and carry certain character with them, but they are to be an example to other men. They are to be an example to their brothers. You know, One of my boys came to me recently and uh, just out of nowhere, he said, Daddy, I noticed that Daniel doesn't get spanked very often. He said, I'm going to try to be more like Daniel, you know? Um, that oftentimes in our immaturity, we think we live alone in this life all to ourselves. You know, we're just arrogant and we're prideful and we think that it's just me and God. Never recognizing that your life in the home and that your life in the church and that your life in this world is not detached from anybody and everybody. That today you are either a good example or you are a bad example. That today I am either a good example or I am a bad example. I remember being in a public high school apart from God. I wasn't at all, you know, and I, and I was a senior in high school and part of this program and I was just living life the way that I wanted to. And uh, my teachers knew that and understood it and I had one director that came to me much uh, at one point and he says, you're influencing the rest of the kids poorly. I know that you, you know, you, he tried to get me into a leadership position, but I didn't want it. I wanted to do my own thing. It was my last year um, and essentially had a conversation with me and he said, you know, you're a leader to these, these, these young boys, whether you realize it or not. And I said, I didn't want that. I didn't ask for that. You know, and it took me later to realize that's a reality, guys. You know, like you're either a, you're either an example to be followed or you're an example to be deterred from. You know that we live this life not in isolation. No man lives to himself. No man dies to himself. He stands accountable to God. But at the end of the age and at the end of the day, um, you must realize um, that we affect and, and influence every single person around us, either positively or negatively. And whether you want to believe that or not, it's a reality. Okay, you want to live apart mentally and think that I'm a I'm a rogue and I'm a man to myself and this church and doesn't need me. But it's but but you affect people here, you know, like people you've never even really talked to or people you've never really truly possibly engaged in or maybe you are. Your presence here, or your absence here, influences and impacts others. The way that you carry yourself in this world, you are a pattern, and you are to be a pattern of good works. And this is replete in Scripture as Paul commends to us time and time again that follow me as I follow Christ. You know, do what I do, but not inherently simply because I do it, but do it because I am the, the, the canvas upon which Christ is painted. Thus we are to realize and recognize that even within the context of this local congregation that we learn from this 
that healthy churches are churches that preach and teach healthy doctrine, particularly the gospel, and in accord with that demand upon the commands of Christ that you be changed. And as the grace of God goes forth, it changes and transforms us and cultivates in us this character in which not only does the teaching in and of itself transform us by the power of the Spirit, but even in the context of the body, we look at one another and we see an example to follow as that person is being brought and wrought by the grace of Christ and cultivated such type of character. You look at that man and you think, that's a man in whom Christ is blessing. There is no doubt him and his family. And I know that there's not one stop shop and a seven uh, stop method and, and 12 steps to being a better father or a better husband or a, having a better family. Um, but at the same time, you recognize that there is a certain type of, of character that, that, that no doubt God blesses, that, that faithfulness God honors, that when you try to honor Christ with your family, and you try to honor Christ with your life, and you try to honor Christ with your church, that He honors it, and it's simply the grace of God, you know? It's simply that, that healthy churches are teaching churches. They teach by doctrine, and they teach by example. They have men within the congregation that are carrying themselves in such a way that they can be followed. And it's not just the elders. And it's not just me. But a healthy church is not only a church that teaches, but a healthy church is also a church that's teachable and that learns. Right? It's made up of men and women who are, have cultivated such character that they recognize that they're not perfect. Even the most respectable men, even the most dignified men, even the most reverent women, even the most godly of women. They recognize that the only reason they made it that far is by the grace of God and God has been with them and God continues with them in faith and in repentance and that's what they exemplify to others and, and they too are showing a willingness to even grow even in later life with all of their wisdom. One of the greatest uh, parts of imparts, impartations of wisdom they can give you is, is to be ready to be humble is to cultivate a humble spirit and be ready to learn. Be ready to look in the mirror. When something goes bad or something goes wrong, don't be quick to point the finger or think that they're the enemy. First examine self and recognize that it may be you. And is there something here, even apart from that, that I can do to, to, to forgive or to reconcile or to bring this thing back, right? That a healthy church recognizes both old and young, men and women, every age and generation, and this is not a perfect church, nor will it ever be. But it, could, but it can be a mature church and a healthy church um, that is not yet perfect, yet being perfected by sound teaching that accords with godliness and godliness being cultivated um, in the congregation, not only by listening and receiving the teaching, but also being taught by other men's example and other women's example of what true godliness is. Um, that's what we learn. That we are to teach, and we are to teach to be taught. And we are to look, and we are to look to learn to recognize with humble hearts that we have not yet attained nor been apprehended for that which we have been apprehended for. Thus, we are to seek to honor God even more faithfully now. Right? We learn from this that the gospel demands and requires certain things of us. 
Men, the gospel requires and demands certain things from you. It requires you to be a certain type of man. So in the future days, this next coming year, I will expect you to be that type of man. It's funny, Ed, you lay no expectations down for your children, they achieve nothing, <laughs> you know? But you go to them and you say, God expects this of you. You say, I expect this of you. You'll be amazed at how they excel and how they pursue and what that provokes them to and pushes them on. And the reality is, is maybe I've not expected much. Maybe it's because on a lot of days I feel like a hypocrite because I've not expected much of myself. I don't know, you know? Or you see where you kind of fall and falter. And you wonder how much weight your voice or example even carries with other people. But at the same time, in the Gentile church, perfection was not a requirement for expectation nor for teaching in accordance with godliness. But the reality is, is that we will, none of us will be perfect, but we can push each other on to perfection. We can require of one another and expect one another what God requires and what God expects. And not only with the men, but with the ladies, you know? That there is an expectation laid out. Thus, we should hold one another accountable. We should stir one another up to good works. We should find our life and activity, not only within the home primarily, but also within the church to govern ourselves and to teach one another and to learn together what it is to be a healthy church and what God requires and what He desires. And thus we provoke each other on, myself included. That this is not a requirement for pastors only, to be a type of man in which others can follow. But this is required in chapter 2 of all men. That men, you are to be reverent. Men, you are to be dignified. Men, you are to have to be respected. Men, you are to be sober. Men, you know, should know how to control yourself. You should know what to say and what not to say. You should know how to carry yourself. You should know what's important and what's not. And thus, it seems incumbent upon me to expect that of you. And you should expect that of me. And when I'm not, I should be humble enough to say I'm not. You're right. And repent of it and move forward. And the same for you. This is life in the church. This is hard. Sometimes it seems harsh. But this is the reality. That we push each other on positively and we push each other on seemingly negatively. But we all do it for the purpose of Christ. And that should be remembered as well. That if you're, if you're, if you're correcting someone or you're, you're rebuking someone or you're pushing someone on, the first question you should ask is, am I doing this to the glory of God? Because if you're not, keep your mouth closed. Okay? We're not seeking contention or division for contention or division's sake. We're seeking it for the glory of God. And, and that happens both, again, positively and negatively. It happens as you encourage and, 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 and push each other on and stir one another up to, good work, to, to, to love and to good works. And you're there, that, that, that positive example. And at times, you know, love is manifested in going to a brother and saying, I think you're sinning, you know? Like, I love you. Um... And the reality is, is that when that failure happens and you don't go, not only are you doing injustice to that brother and yourself, you're setting a poor pattern for the entire church. You know? We don't live to ourselves and we don't die to ourselves. That we are either a, a great example or a faithful, let's say that faithful example of following Christ, or we're not. 
that healthy churches are made up of healthy doctrine that is in accordance with godliness and cultivates a character that cannot be found in this world but only abides in Christ. And as people receive that, that character is cultivated in them not only through hearing but also through seeing that, great, that, that faithful example of other men and other women. And if you see that, young people particularly, if you see that example in an older man or an older woman, you should watch closely. And if you need help, you should ask. You know? You should come to them. You should run to them. You should stick close to them. And you should be ready to sit and be ready to learn. And for those that come to you, you say, for those of you that they have came, you say, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor. I don't know if I can do this. Trust the grace of God in what He has commanded you to do to love that brother or to love that sister and trust that in your faithfulness and desire to be a blessing to that person that God will meet you there and manifest Himself through you. Trust Him that you are able to do what He has called you to do. And that is to be a blessing and a light and a, and a help to your brothers and sisters. You say, that's not what I'm here for. Then I don't know why you're here. This is why we meet. This is why we gather. This is why not only on Sunday, but throughout the week, we are with one another to fulfill the purposes of God, to, to grow in Christ, to receive teaching, not only verbally, but also visually, um, auditorily, and through following one another's example. So I encourage you to be with one another. Simply be with one another, you know? Throughout the week, find opportunities simply to be with one, with the intention of learning with the intention of growing, with the intention of being an example, but also following an example. It always amazes me. It always amazes me when we have people over, we go over to folks, folks' houses. It's almost like everything changes. I know you don't govern your household like that when I come over. It's like rules go out the window with kids. Don't do that. Do not do that. You carry on life as you always do. You don't forfeit rules or regulations or responsibilities because I'm there. And you don't want me to think that you're too harsh or this or that. What you're teaching is you're teaching your children that you're inconsistent and that under this context, rules don't matter, but under this one, it does. You know, we need to be an example to one another. We don't need to be hypocrites and we don't need to lay aside certain things and standards um, simply because we're in the presence and we don't want anybody to think like this is the church. This is who we are. This is how we carry ourselves. You know, if you do certain things in your home, if you're with other people, if you're doing this, carry on. I need to learn. I need to learn from you. And you need to learn from me. And God's Spirit is active in that and even bringing us to Himself through that. But there's something about hearing and there's also something about seeing. And I trust that when these things are cultivated, we will be fit and able to be used of God in the way that He calls us to. Are we a healthy church? Are you a healthy Christian? Are you teachable? And are you ready to teach? Are you a pattern that can be followed? Are we as a church a pattern that can be followed? I know of a guy who's going to be coming in a few weeks. He's pastoring a little church in Greenville. And he just wants to learn. You know? And I have to think about myself. Like, should we change this? Should we change that? No, you should... You know, <laughs> no. If we hadn't changed it already because of the cause of Christ, don't change it for Him. And will we be a good example? 
Or will we be a hindrance to him in his walk and his pastoral role? You know, these are things you have to think about whether you're a pastor or not. You are an example. Are you a faithful example? Or are you an unfaithful example? Men, Christ purchased not only your salvation, but your sanctification. Is Christ receiving today what he died for in your life? Ladies, the same question for you. If not, let us cling to him now and beg him to help us. And when we rise, let us be willing um, to receive the an that answer to the prayer, maybe by the person who's sitting across from us or behind us, that they would be gracious enough to be that example and we would be humble enough to follow. Listen, this is the church. This is it. It's not a Sunday morning service. I know we're going to run away after this because I've preached too long. <laughs> um, but church has to be more than this. It has to be. It has to be life together, learning from one another to accomplish the purpose for which Christ saved us. Because the reality is we will never, purchase, uh, we will never accomplish it by ourselves. So let us cling to Christ by clinging to one another. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the privilege it is to call upon you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the church. We thank you for men like Paul, who seems like a super evangelist, a super apostle, seems like a guy who is so far removed from us, so much more faithful than us. God uses in so many more mightier ways than us, but the reality is, Father, he's just flesh and blood who desired to be faithful, and you used him in mighty ways. God, he had the character and the content that you gave him. He held fast not to his own heart, but to yours. Father, he didn't. He died to himself, and he lived unto you. Father, I pray the same. God, I know that in some way we won't have an identical ministry to him. But I do trust, Father, that it can be as meaningful and as purposeful as we live out life, Father, in this context, in the context of our homes, in the context of our families, that we can go with a holy boldness and a great joy, Father, that is... Um, unspeakable and full of glory beyond measure, Father, and we can feel um, and be just as useful in the context that you've placed us as Paul was, Father, even to the nations. But the body is made up of many parts, and I'm just happy to be a part tonight, this morning, Father, even if it's a little part, realizing that there are no little Christians, there are no little parts, simply faithful and unfaithful Christians. So help us, Father, to be faithful individuals and help us, Lord, to be a faithful church. God, make us fit to be used for your glory and for your glory alone. Help us to be an example of other church, two other churches, Father, and in the way that they ought to go and how to be faithful. Not to be arrogant or to be prideful or to um, uh, exalt ourselves, Father, but to exalt Christ. May our men be examples to other men. May our men be examples to our children. May our ladies, Father, be examples to other ladies, and may our ladies be examples, Father, to their children and to other children of what honors Christ and what type of character um, is to be cultivated for um, the purposes of God. Help us to pursue this, Father. Help us to know that there is a teaching in accord with godliness, and there is a doctrine that's not. 
Father, help us and aid us to be a healthy church and to move forward for the glory of God. Help us, Father, to be humble and to be teachable and to be ready to learn, knowing that we're not perfect, but that you are perfecting us. Thus, there is something to learn today. And that's what a disciple is, simply a learner. So, Father, cultivate in us a love and a humble spirit in which you make us more like your son even today. May we not walk away unmoved or unchanged or untransformed, but may you accomplish an eternal work in us now, Father, um, simply because we strive to honor you and to be faithful. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.